should not drink and bake. Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we are here this time to talk about Raw Deal. Oh yeah. <laughs> now, Tony, Raw Deal, not one of the Schwarzenegger titles you see on the Mount Rushmore of Schwarzenegger. No, not his most remembered 1980s action <laughs> flick. Why do you think that is? Because there are better films... <laughs> That Schwarzenegger did in the 1980s and beyond, for that matter. Right. Now, I am curious. Uh, this came out in 1986, of course. This movie, I feel like even if you didn't see this movie, and I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who have not watched this movie, even though they've seen most of Arnold's other movies, they know the poster. I remember the artwork for this movie was everywhere. People really know two things about this movie. They know the poster. Yeah. And they know the gunfight. In the car, in the gravel quarry. Right. And no one knows anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Even after they've seen it. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> yeah. Like, the poster for this movie is iconic. And I think it's just mostly because Schwarzenegger looks awesome on it. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be a great film, but turns out you can't judge a book by its cover. So, Tony, do you remember the first time you watched Raw Deal? I don't, actually. I I do remember I saw it when I was younger. I've mentioned it before. My father blessed me with a uh, cinematically irresponsible upbringing. And uh, I watched it in some living room at some age or another. And I hadn't revisited it since. Well, did you ever feel compelled to revisit it? No, not really. I I'd, I'd thought about watching it again. Um, but... Because it seems like one that you would perhaps be drawn towards revisiting at some point i mean you yeah. rewatch a lot of bad movies how many times have you seen highlander 2 <laughs> i've probably seen highlander 2 a few times yeah. yeah now you know what now that we're talking i actually don't even know if i if i had watched raw deal again <laughs> for all i know i could have seen raw deal like 15 times <laughs> but this time we're recording it for posterity right. so I'll, right. I'll know that i've seen it like uh how about you cam when when did you first see raw deal okay now this is where i come in sounding like a broken record but this was on <laughs> tough guy super channel the, the, yeah, yeah yeah tough yeah. guy thursdays which was done through my local cable affiliate and they would show clint eastwood arnold uh, uh stallone movies etc charles bronson um and uh yeah i i'd seen at this point terminator and predator i was really into those movies and I remember seeing the commercials for Raw Deal, and I was like, oh my god, another Schwarzenegger extravaganza. So I taped it, and I remember watching it, and only two scenes stuck with me. The aforementioned car in the uh, gravel quarry, um, but also the scene where he has a fight with his wife, and she throws a cake. For some reason, that scene really stuck with me, too. But other than that, I don't think the movie left any impression whatsoever. And I don't think I disliked it when I watched it the first time. I just... Don't think I felt compelled to watch it again, other than I do remember re-watching the quarry shootout scene over and over again, just by rewinding that part that I taped off the VHS. 
I can only imagine what a cable version of this film or of all of Schwarzenegger's films would be like. Because it seems like that was your first exposure to a lot of them. I don't think the shootout was that much different in The Quarry. Because if you look at it, there's not a lot of blood. My guess is they would have cut out the scene of the guy falling in the rock crusher. And maybe, yeah, that might have been about it. Yeah, who knows? I, I don't know what the squib tolerance was uh, in the early 90s on TBS. More than you'd think. More than you'd think. I mean, I remember watching Predator on there, and they didn't cut a lot. It was just enough that I guess parents felt like they could sleep at night by showing it to their children. <laughs> My father would have been fine sleeping at night. <laughs> I think he would have slept better just knowing that I was in the house <laughs> watching television. But yeah, I feel like I watched Raw Deal, you know, maybe a little bit before I watched Red Heat, a movie we reviewed, you know, a handful of episodes ago. And yeah, th- these were kind of like the lesser Arnolds that I just never felt compelled to revisit. Um... Look, no one saw this movie, even when it came out in theaters. I can't believe that. (laughs) So the movie really only got made in its current form because Dino De Laurentiis, the producer who (laughs) was something of a schlockmeister, who just ran rampant throughout Hollywood for several decades... Yeah, no way. I don't I don't believe that about old Dino. (laughs) I mean, he did the King Kong 1976 remake. That's like his most maybe famous movie, maybe? I think it's got to be Conan the Barbarian. You think? Oh well, that's good though. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, all the all the blame can't go on Dino. His uh, it wasn't clear whether he or his wife were the brains of this schlocky <laughs> operation. Yeah. Well, they wanted to make Total Recall, and Schwarzenegger wanted to make Total Recall, but Dino De Laurentiis did not have the money to make Total Recall. Not with who he wanted to star in it, <laughs> which was Patrick Swayze. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah, and so he was like, well, I need some quick cash. How do I do that? I make raw deal. It's going to rake in a bunch of money, and then I can pay for Total Recall. And so he made raw deal. Uh, there's no nailed down budget, but it's estimated to be around between 11 and $12 million, and it grossed $60 million. <laughs> Well, that's pretty good. It uh, half again its budget. You know, not bad business investment, right? It's Arnold's twenty-sixth highest-grossing movie, in between The Last Stand and Escape Plan. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> Those didn't do well, Tony. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and in the year of nineteen eighty-six, it was number fifty-four. It landed right between Howard the Duck, uh, the first uh, entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> And the moment the world began to question George Lucas. <laughs> and uh, the other film it uh, was just above was Armed and Dangerous, the John Candy comedy. I thought the moment the world began to question John Lucas was going to be the name of the other movie. John Lucas? You mean his brother? <laughs> yeah, sorry, George <laughs> Lucas. <laughs> Sometimes we record these podcasts at odd hours and things get a little <laughs> sloppy. <But> I think it's... <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, when you look at this block, because you got Howard the Duck, Raw Deal, Armed and Dangerous. These are not <laughs> the best films by any of these people. Armed and Dangerous comes one spot ahead of uh, Legend, the Tom Cruise movie. And it's like, there's another one. There's another megastar kind of flopping that year as well. Yeah, and who directed Legend? That was Ridley Scott. That's right. So a mega director and a mega star <laughs> flopping on a poorly conceived Tom, <laughs> Tom Cruise in a... As a woodland nymph. <laughs> yeah, and a cutoff of some kind. Yeah, and so that year, it was a pretty strong year for iconic 80s movies. Such as Raw Deal. Uh, obviously. <laughs> well, the poster. 
<laughs> the poster sold like hotcakes. <laughs> but number one for that year was Top Gun. So Tom Cruise, you know, he was down at like number 56 or whatever, but he was up at number one as he well. He came out okay in 86. And who directed Top Gun? Tony Scott. <laughs> so Tony Scott, cha-ching, Ridley Scott, wah, 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 wow. <laughs> Jeez, I always forget about the Scott rivalry. I know, right? And number two, you had Crocodile Dundee, a movie that was a far bigger hit than I think people like to admit now. In third place, you had Platoon, the Oliver Stone film. Fourth place, The Karate Kid Part 2, which I didn't even like as a kid. I thought it was terrible. Hey, they got a Part 3 out of it. They did, and that was terrible too. Uh, in fifth place, you had Star Trek for The Voyage Home. In sixth place, you had Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Seventh place, Aliens, the James Cameron movie. Eighth place, the Eddie Murphy classic, The Golden Child. Ninth place, Ruthless People. And tenth place, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That is a pretty strong batch. Yeah, I'd say that's a pretty strong batch, at least in terms of box office. I will admit, though, there's a lot of movies on that list that aren't really my favorites. No, I don't think they're all great, but they're all very iconic. Yeah, that's pro- That's true. That's fair enough. And 86 is actually really interesting. I was going through, because I'm like, what else beat Raw Deal? And I see movies like Short Circuit... Uh, Iron Eagle, um, Delta Force, and this one's a little awkward, the reissue of Song of the South. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I beat it by a, like four spots. Um, but then what did it beat? That's the question. We've already you know, figured out that uh, Legend, Legend, but Labyrinth, um, Big Trouble in Little China, Highlander, Transformers the movie, and I think most importantly of all, GoBots Battle of the Rock Lords. Also known as... <laughs> Almost the Transformers movie. <laughs> did you ever see GoBots Battle of the Rock Lords? Uh, no, I did not. Did you even know it existed? I did not. <laughs> and I did not know that it was competing with Transformers the movie either. Yeah. But that's actually a surprising number of recognizable films yeah. in, in the, you know, below the top 50. Like, you don't think of Highlander as, like, just a tanking movie. No, no, not at all. Yeah. Or for that matter, Labyrinth. Yeah. No, I thought Labyrinth was, you know, I didn't think it was a mega hit, but I thought it did well. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's why David Bowie went back to music, I guess. That's right. So, yeah, not uh, much of an impact in 1986. And uh, it's not even one you can say, unlike those other films that it beat, maybe with the exception of GoBots, I don't think Rod Deal built up any sort of, you know, cult fandom. I don't think so. I mean... Uh... I feel like I'm pretty dialed into the Schwarzenegger fan base. Yeah. And I've never heard anyone be like, oh my god, Raw Deal is my favorite. What do you think gets more recognition, Red Heat or Raw Deal? Well, I'm glad you brought it up, because as I, as I was watching, like the movies actually have a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of similarities, at least maybe not thematically, but in their making. Right. Um, but I gotta say Red Heat... Okay. Is probably slightly better known. Because of James Belushi? <laughs> Maybe not because of James Belushi, but because of that Schwarzenegger playing a Russian and yeah. it's a little bit meaner and harder hitting. I think Walter Hill's a more noteworthy director than John Irvin. It's a little bit of a better movie, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this one just feels like kind of a B movie. It feels like it could be put out by Canon Pictures. Yeah, I mean, I felt like... Hey, don't knock Canon. Canon, hey, look. Canon had some quality films. <laughs> they did, but the whole time I'm watching this movie, I kept thinking of um, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, which just feels very similar to me. I, I'm sure that several of these actors that were in this movie 
Um, <laughs> given that you know this movie is populated by kind of also ran character actors. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that many of them appeared in the Death Wish series <laughs> in various capacities. I think Canon only did the fourth one though. I think, to the best of my memory. I don't know, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. well, that's that'll yeah. be in our separate that's, that's Death a, Wish podcast. That's a whatever with a capital W. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So let's get into uh, Raw Deal. We just rewatched it. Um, it. It was a lean 145 minutes. Yeah. What we'll say, I know it might be challenging to do so, but uh, we will be spoiling the movie for you. So if you haven't watched it and you are interested in the Schwarzenegger filmography or knowing what the hell we're talking about, because yeah. this is going to be a confusing one, Yeah. Uh, by all means, push, push pause and go and spend that hour 45 to... To give it a look. Yeah, I feel like people can sit and listen to, say, our Terminator 3 episode without having seen Terminator 3 and get the gist of it. But raw deal. I don't know if that's the case. Because I found this one of the most confusing, simple movies I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, uh, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, we just rewatched this movie. Tony, what is it about? Well, this... Sorry to put you on the spot with this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, this cinematic extravaganza stars our favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger as... Mark Kaminsky, a former FBI agent turned small town sheriff turned mob annihilator undercover type dude who goes from place to place meeting a confusing array of interchangeable <laughs> mafiosas and piling bodies sky high. And apparently he's also separated from his wife. It's not really clear. There's a lot of stuff that's not that clear. But the general gist of it is we got Kaminsky killing people. <laughs> and that's uh well you I, I don't know if, that but he doesn't kill people for a long time he doesn't kill people for a long time but when he starts he doesn't stop no that's very true and he's hired by darren mcgavin who's plays harry shannon his former colleague whose son was killed when he was undercover with the mob in uh yeah a hit that opens the movie um set at a cabin in the woods which is the second hit at a cabin in the woods we've watched since uh you know we covered sabotage that's, that's two now. That's true. I hadn't I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. There's also a gunfight at a cemetery. Yeah, just like Terminator 3, the last episode we did. Yeah, we're doing all right here. I'm feeling a lot of uh, crossover themes. There's a master's thesis in here somewhere. There's a lot of shirtless uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is pretty much every movie we've reviewed so far on this podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I want to say from the outset here, uh, just to, to cut in, I want to make sure that... You are watching the 1986 Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, Raw Deal, uh, and not the 1948 Anthony Mann film Raw Deal. Which is probably better. <laughs> it's gotta be. I haven't seen it. We'll have to do it on another episode. Anthony Mann's a great director. I'm gonna guess that it's probably better. <laughs> um, so, Tony, revisiting Raw Deal... What was your take the second time around? Well, I think you and I have already given away our sure. uh, our top secret feelings on this film. This movie is, uh, I mean, it has got a fair amount of action in it, but it is one of the most confusing takes on a dead simple plot that I have ever seen. Uh, I had to turn to you, Cam, at midpoint in the movie and just confirm that... It wasn't just me that that because I had no idea what was going on. I turned to you at one point too as well, and I was like, "What? What's going on?" And you were like, "I don't know." <laughs> yeah, no, I I couldn't figure out uh, who the characters were, why they were doing anything that they were doing. 
Uh, I had a general idea that Schwarzenegger was undercover, trying to regain his reputation. Um, but beyond that, uh, there is really not a lot of rhyme or reason into why people were doing what they were doing. Or if there was, I just couldn't figure it out. We're going to dive into that, I think, big time in a few minutes. The whole, what is Arnold doing moment to moment in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, I would say this is a semi-entertaining bad movie. Like, I sat through this thing enjoying quite a bit of it. The soundtrack is bonkers. There's a lot of weird scenes, like moments where you and I just looked at each other or burst out laughing in unison. Like, it has enough of that stuff to make it kind of fun to watch. Like, I think Red Heat was a little bit of a better movie, but I think maybe this one's a little more fun to watch. Yeah, I'd agree with that. This is, uh, if you were going to throw a movie on a projector at a group camping trip with yeah. beers being passed around, uh, this would be a better movie to put on than Red Heat. Yeah, totally. And the one thing I think that could have really improved this movie would be to lose like 15 minutes. This should be no longer than 90 minutes. Yeah, I think that's an absolutely fair commentary. Another thing that would really help improve this movie would be to um, distinguish the secondary characters in this movie by maybe some facial hair or something <laughs> like that because um you know the, we've talked before about the stereotypical hollywood take on uh you know uh, italian gangsters sure and this movie personifies that and that every character is just like a black-haired hook-nosed suit-wearing interchangeable mafia guy did they all look like italian to you though they, they had Italian names, a lot of them, but they didn't look very Italian to me. You don't get more Italian than Luigi. <laughs> yeah, but did he look like he was Italian? Uh, he was the one guy I could tell, wasn't <laughs> he? He was the boss. <laughs> there was a number of them where I was like, they don't really look like mobsters, so much as like the local bowling team. <laughs> but well-dressed. <laughs> Not really. There was a number of scenes where they were attacking them in like the mall and they're wearing like windbreakers. <laughs> Those are just the thugs. Sure. <laughs> well, the thugs were not well dressed. <laughs> they weren't well dressed and I I did find it interesting that despite the fact the thugs had showed up and attacked Arnold already once in the movie, yeah. by the time they showed up the second time, both you and I had to ask each other where where are these guys from again? <laughs> Anyways, the point is is that there's a lot of forgettable characters in this movie. Yeah, and I think what makes this movie confusing is a lot of it is centered on a mob war. And Arnold in the center, as well as the police kind of interfering and the FBI. And you have these two mobs opposing each other and kind of breaking each other down. But it's not conveyed in a way that's coherent. I think it's really interesting that the original story for this movie was uh, written by Luciano Vincenzoni and Sergio Donati, who were associated with the Sergio Leone classic Clint Eastwood westerns, like Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Fistful of Dynamite, which Clint Eastwood wasn't in, but it's another Sergio Leone movie, um, as well as For a Few Dollars More, um, Once Upon a Time in the West. Like, these guys know how to do these sorts of revenge-type stories, but this one felt really muddy, so I'm very curious what the gap is between the story credits and what wound up in the screenplay. And the screenplay well, is by two different people entirely. Yeah. yeah, and then it fell into the hands of Gary DeVore and Norman Wexler. Gary DeVore is known for a mysterious 
1997 disappearance that's been linked to an alleged government conspiracy. Oh my God, really? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, yeah. Very, very famous uh, disappearance slash murder in Hollywood. Not that famous, is uh, it? It's fairly well known. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, that's fascinating. And he, you know, the only credit of his that kind of I recognized was a 1980 movie called Dogs of War. I think I've seen the video box at some point in my life. But Norman Wexler is actually really noteworthy. He wrote Serpico, the Al Pacino classic. He wrote Saturday Night Fever, as well as the lesser-liked sequel, Staying Alive. And how much of that was him and how much of that was Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, well, that's true. But you look at the pedigree of the writers on this movie, three out of four of them are like really strong. Like They have genuine classics under their belt. And the other one may or may not be involved in a government conspiracy or alien abduction. Sure. And so it becomes really interesting to know where this went wrong because I feel like these four guys can probably write a mob revenge story. So, like, why does this movie feel so weird? I'm not sure. Uh, I do kind of get the impression that maybe this movie started off as something different than it was. Yeah. You know, you look at where the movie more or less opens, there's a... A little subplot between Arnold Schwarzenegger and his alcoholic wife. Yeah, who, what the hell is that? Who just, um, I mean, there's. it's kind of a funny scene where she throws a cake at him. Intentionally and, funny? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to think about that it's one. It's weird. I'll, I'll, I'll plead the fifth. Because, yeah, he comes home. They're living in like a small town. He's a sheriff. And she's really upset. And she says she's celebrating their fifth anniversary living in a small town where everyone's boring. <laughs> And it just turns into her drinking and then throwing a cake at Arnold. And on the cake, it has the word shit on it. Yeah. And then she's talking about how they're like cows. And don't forget, it's got one of Arnold's most memorable lines of all time. I don't know about of all time. I'm just, I'm being facetious. Yeah, yeah. You should not drink and bake. And I stand by that. (laughs) Um, It's, It's no, I'll be back. But this scene, did you think this domestic scene was really weird? I didn't think it was that weird at the time, but in the context of the rest of the movie, it's totally bizarre because she totally disappears. Uh, Schwarzenegger fakes his own death without telling her. And I like that he fakes his own death in a way where there's no body. <laughs> yeah, ha- has an affair with uh, you know a mob boss's uh, girlfriend or consort. Or... He doesn't really have an affair, though. It's not at all clear to me what he does or doesn't do with her. Um, Why do you think there's never a scene of him telling his wife he's going to go undercover to help his friend? Or why is his wife never again in the movie except at the very end he alludes to saying, yeah, we're back together or something. (laughs) And she's pregnant. She's expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I got to believe that when it comes to the script that this movie started off as something different than it ended up being and... And, you know, through the magic of script writing slap chop became the (laughs) (laughs) bloated mess that appeared before us. I could find just so little interesting information on the making of this movie on the internet that I wound up going to Arnold Schwarzenegger's autobiography, Total Recall, to try and figure out if there was anything. Because he's talked in his book about some of the other ones. He pointed out, like, which ones were disappointments or how he felt about the movies. You know, about some of the ones that you don't find a lot about online. And um, I could find nothing. There's three mentions of Raw Deal in the book. And each of them is just like, so I was off shooting Raw Deal at the time. Or then I did Raw Deal for Dino De Laurentiis. Like, he's just saying lines like that. There's no quality 
you know, uh, attached to any of his mentions of them. Well, I feel like he he maybe he got kind of roped into this because yeah. at the time he was signed up with Dino De Laurentiis to do a billion Conan sequels of some form or another. It was like the Marvel contract of the 1980s. That's right. Like a pretty onerous contract of a bunch of sequels that he didn't want to do at the time. Well, actually, I don't know if he wanted to do them or not, but anyways, it was an onerous contract, and he did this deal, uh, Dino De Laurentiis gave him a pass to to get out of him. Right, I'm curious though, because Dino De Laurentiis did Red Sonja, right? Yeah, I think he was somehow attached to that, it was, uh, I think the Dino De Laurentiis company was, it was uh, another guy, Christian Ferry, that was either producer or executive producer on it. The reason I ask that is just, I'm thinking he was attached to do all these Conan sequels, and yet Kalidor is the character in uh, Red Sonja. I'm curious how that works rights-wise. If the De Laurentiis company is, you know, funding uh, the Red Sonja film, but Schwarzenegger's not playing Conan. That's just interesting to me. Yeah, I'm not sure. That, I mean, that would be interesting. Certainly, um, you know, the scuttlebutt was that... Uh, certainly, I mean, as we talked about in our Red Sonja episode, which seems like ages ago now... Yeah, no kidding. Uh, you know, uh, the reason he was called Kalidor, there was some possible rights issues with the Conan name and that sort of thing. Right, right. Okay. Um, so anyways, yeah, let's just kind of get into the, the plot of this movie. I want to hammer down the specifics of Arnold Schwarzenegger's mission in this movie. Because I could not, for the life of me, figure it out. Well, you were asking the wrong guy. <laughs> because, okay, Darren McGavin, he's mourning his son. Yes. In a very weird scene. He's, like, crying at a desk, saying, like, you know, he's dead, and there's tears coming down his face. And then there's a cut to a camera angle from, to like, the, the right, looking at them in a side view. And, like, Darren McGavin's like, go get him! And it's, like, two different rooms. It's very weird. There's a lot of very strange cuts in this movie yeah. that do not help. Even the opening, the, the, the mob hit that I referenced earlier, cuts... Just super abruptly to this really wacky country music and Schwarzenegger driving a Jeep yeah, for the, the opening credits. The ch yeah, the chase scene. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of strange editing choices like that in this film that yeah. do not help to help you to understand the movie or to get a real sense of the flow that they were going for. No, I agree. But, okay, so Darren McGavin says he has, I think it's $45,000, and he wants Schwarzenegger to, you know, infiltrate the mob and get revenge for him. And he's going to help Schwarzenegger get back into the FBI. Which I don't really understand if this is all off the books. And Darren McGavin is doing this as a private revenge mission. <laughs> I don't know why the FBI is going to allow Schwarzenegger back in after this. I'm guessing that Darren McGavin has some pull. But if they're that close, why wouldn't he just help him get back into the FBI anyways? Right. And so 45000 is that enough to go on in those days? To do all this? I don't know. Maybe. I'm not sure. He, yeah, Schwarzenegger is running a fairly tight budget That's on this, true. in this movie. Okay, yeah. So, he here's where I get confused. I'm just like, this is a revenge mission. Why doesn't he just send Schwarzenegger to go wipe out the mob? Which is ultimately what he does at the end of the movie anyway. He just drives around and shoots them all. Versus this whole smoke and mirrors approach of Schwarzenegger making a name for himself. Showing up at very bizarre nightclubs tipping elevator doorman to like have him go down to the casino so he can start fights in uh but that's see that's another scene like yeah he goes into a casino and like starts a fist fight you're, i just i don't you're, you're spiraling i know i'm like i'm like, I I like hallucinating <laughs> you're you're going into a confusion spiral 
which I which I don't blame you. <laughs> the classic rod deal <laughs> delusions. Yeah, exactly. I've got the vapors. We should lie you down on a couch and have you tell me about your father. <laughs> but I just don't understand how this works because I've seen this in a ton of other mob movies, like say um uh, The Departed. Uh, this movie is kind of don't like... <laughs> compare this movie to The Departed, please. But we've seen this sort of infiltration idea before, and it always made sense to me <laughs> until now. Where in this one, it just seems like Schwarzenegger goes, hangs around, flashes nice suits, and makes weird comments to guys like, you know, have you ever killed anyone? Three. Do you want me to get you their names and addresses? And they're like. Ooh, this guy's good. Yeah, we like him. Don't yeah. let him get in too deep. So we see earlier in the movie uh, that the one of the assistants of Luigi Patrovita, the main villain, played by Sam Wanamaker, is shot and killed by the rival mob, right? And uh, Luigi's kind of upset and says, he was a good kid. We gotta find a replacement. That's right. What happens if that doesn't happen? Does Schwarzenegger have a job opportunity? Does this all hinge on the rival mob Wiping out uh, his assistant. I'm not totally clear on that, Cameron. I'll be totally honest with you. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. <laughs> I had a very hard time following what was going on in this film. Right. Now, there's a scene early on, too, where Schwarzenegger is in an alley and he gets in a fight with three guys. Yes. They were working for Patrovita, Am I right? I thought they were working for Max Keller. Who works for Patrovita, but Max Keller, who is played by Robert Davi, who's always good. Sure. Um, I thought that he wanted to wipe out Schwarzenegger because he was competition right. for him. Right. Because we see that uh, Sam Wanamaker's character has two lieutenants. You got Paul Shinar from Scarface, um, who as Paulo Roca, um, and then you also have Robert Davi, who's kind of like the cleaner. Like, I feel like Roca is kind of the numbers guy. He's the guy who's overseeing the operations. Whereas um, Robert Davies, Max Keller, is like the cleaner. He's the guy doing kind of the dirty work. I thought it was the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's just amazing. <laughs> you, you know there's someone on the bus right now listening to this being like, I gotta get myself a better podcast. I can listen to two idiots not know what's going on in a movie anytime. That's the impression I got. And I got the impression that Schwarzenegger was trying to take Robert Davies job. Right? That's what I thought. Yeah, yeah. So, I just don't understand though how like starting fights in casinos is going to do that. I was under the impression that he was just smashing up the rival gangsters business in order to get an in. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Are that, we on the same page? That part makes sense, Good. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It's just that it, this is a movie where you have scenes that I think make sense when you're watching them, but it's like they've cut out the little bits of exposition that would connect the dots between the scenes. Yeah, and that's one of the problems when I, <laughs> when I mentioned before that these supporting characters were interchangeable. Yeah. It was never clear at all which gang was being attacked ever. Right. And you see, most of the movie is Schwarzenegger hanging out with Patrovita's guys. And it's not even like a fistful of dollars thing where he's bouncing between, you know, uh, Patrovita's mob uh, and the other mob that's headed by Stephen Hill as Martin Lemansky. Like, at first I thought Schwarzenegger was going to try and turn the two of them against each other and basically take them down that way. And that wasn't the case. He mostly just hangs around with Patrovita's guys. 
it just seems like wiping out Leminski's people is just kind of a bonus. It seems like it's the opposite of what Schwarzenegger was actually sent there to do, which is destroy Patravita's mob, not yeah. help it. Yeah, like he really does help them a lot. And they're trying to recover a bunch of drugs that have been seized by the FBI or the cops. And $100 million. And $100 million. Which in 1986 was... Uh, like $150 million. <laughs> it was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, but why is Schwarzenegger like helping them come up with plans that would put bombs in police stations? Or would help them recover yeah. $100 million. Which they do. Which they do. And there's no outcome to that. They just take the money back. There's never, there's never a scene of the money being re- returned to the police. Well, it's alluded to on the uh, one of the newscasts where they're yeah. just wondering what happened at the gravel quarry. Right. Which is where all the drugs and money are being sorted. <laughs> this is so confusing. It's baffling. When really, for, for what really is a dead simple plot yes. of, you know, uh, that's been done hundreds of times before sure. and after uh to varying degrees of effect but that's where i got confused because it's like yes the police have the drugs schwarzenegger wants to get the drugs back i guess to just climb the ranks although he's already pretty high in in a patrovita's operation seems like he's like the you know fourth down the yeah there. but I, so i don't really get why he's doing that but then to suggest that they actually bomb a police station Seems questionable for a police officer to do. It sure does. But, I mean, we've seen Schwarzenegger play these types of characters before in, say, Eraser? Sure. Maybe. A cop with unconventional methods who's too violent or too extreme for the force. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, that's what they were going for with this character, obviously. He's, um, you know, rough around the edges. But, if anything, uh, I think they accomplished that side of his character um, probably more effectively in Red Heat than they did here. Yeah, and you know, I think what would have helped this kind of really weird journey through the underworld is that Schwarzenegger never seems like he's going to be corrupted throughout this process. Like, as you referenced earlier, he kind of has this flirtation-slash-relationship with Catherine Harold um, as a character named Monique, who's a gambler who owes a lot of money to the mob. And... Always your best choice when you're going to enter into a potential affair with your wife who thinks you're dead is a (laughs) a gambling addict uh, with ties to the mafia. Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, like, Schwarzenegger never seems tempted by her. He sets up pretty quick that he's not willing to, you know, cross that line and betray his wife to fulfill this mission. So then you're kind of like, well, I don't really understand the point of this relationship. And and we're going to have to... We're going to have to agree to disagree there because I was totally under the impression that they had, in fact, had an affair off screen. (laughs) This is so fascinating. No way, because there's the moment where they're at the place drinking the champagne and he fakes that he's passing out. He he is not going to go through with it. I thought he passed out and then woke up. No, 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 no. (laughs) And then, you know, he's telling her, you know, she's just a friend to him, which is fine. But the thing is, like, I think if you want to do this story... And I would be very curious if original drafts of this movie, especially the one by Norman Wexler, who wrote Serpico, had tackled this. It's like, Schwarzenegger shows no signs of being tempted by the mob life. There's one point where he says, like, oh, you know, that his his alter, his alter ego's name is Joseph Brenner. And he's like, oh, yeah, I get to wear, you know, nice clothes and have money. 
well, whatever. <laughs> like, there's never a moment where Schwarzenegger seems like he's getting pulled in. You know, I think of, like, DiCaprio in... Um, Are you going to do it again? I am, in The Departed. Like, you feel that <laughs> that character that. is constantly being tempted. <laughs> you know, he's kind of losing sight of where he is. Whereas, like, Schwarzenegger... I think, I don't know if I blame it on the performance of the writing, but it never seems like this character is being tempted by the lifestyle. He never seems like he's really being tempted by Catherine Harold's character. He just seems like he's mostly, like, inactive, just kind of hanging out with these guys. Although he doesn't really have too many compunctions about murdering people he doesn't know in order to get his job done. No, no, that's true. But it seems like most of his job is to just hang around and troll Robert Davi's character. <laughs> yeah, make fun of him and, you know, get his blood boiling and, uh, yeah. you know, uh, Robert Davi and Catherine Harold uh, have uh, an unrequited love. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe on his side. <laughs> on his side. Yeah. But, you know, I, I referenced Paul Shinar as Roca, who I thought was kind of in charge of the operations and you <laughs> thought was the hitman, whatever. But, um, you know, here's the thing. I think it would have been really interesting if Roca had been in a position where the two of them are vying for his approval. And so you have more of Davy versus Schwarzenegger trying to get Roca's approval, in which case, you know, Schwarzenegger would be the one. It would make a lot more sense why he's trolling Davy the whole time and trying to make him look bad. Mm-hmm. But you never get the sense that the mob, you know, is going to turn against Robert Davy's character. He's never in danger. No, in fact, he's... Uh seen as a, if not an equal, at least a very trusted and high-ranking officer in this Luigi Patrovita's organization. Yeah, like they never once are like, what is he up to? Like, maybe we should deal with him. Like, I think in a different movie, maybe a better movie, you know, the Patrovita gang would ultimately end up taking out Robert Davi's character along the lines of like Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. Right, and you know what, I think, in hindsight, you know what really made Goodfellas work more than anything? Mm. Is that I can tell the difference between Joe Pesci and Ray Liotta. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Now, I've got a little uh, question for you. Uh-oh. How old do you think Robert Davi was in this movie? Oh, i got to say probably about 40? 35. Hey, that's not bad. He's younger than us. <laughs> what are you saying? I don't know what I'm saying. I'm saying people age differently in the 80s. Well, you know what? Robert Davi has always looked like Robert Davi. If you see That's true. if you see Robert Davi now, he still looks like he's um, thirty five, going on forty five. It's true. Yeah, we're not going to look as good as Robert Davi does now. No, yeah. <laughs> we're already going down the slope. But you know, let's get into some of the other elements of this movie. <laughs> Are you sure? Yeah. Well, do you have any? Do you have any questions? Like, were there other things that popped out to you? Yeah, I do have some questions, and some of them do go back to the script. I mean. Uh, incomprehensible plot and indistinguishable characters aside <laughs> right um how did you find the the general the dialogue and that kind of thing in this film uh it's like total boilerplate stuff it's a lot of really hokey lines intended to sound like tough but they just sound lame like it's kind of like the walmart version of tough guy dialogue <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Just, yeah. It's not like profane. It's not particularly threatening. It doesn't sound like it's sort of tinged with that sense of violence or menace that you get in, I think, real mob movies. Yeah, at best, it's kind of cheesy. And at worst, it's downright baffling. Yeah. Um, there are several lines in this film that uh, 
you know, I stopped and I thought about them and I still have no idea what was intended. And if, if I was, if I was trying to stare down uh, a mobster in order to show how tough I was, yeah, uh, I wouldn't use lines like if you're the best there is, the wheel would never have been invented. Yeah. That's a terrible line. I'm still trying to puzzle out what exactly that meant. Uh, if you, dear listener, happen to know and can puzzle out that metaphor or reference that I'm missing, please uh, get in touch. Is he saying that he's like a Neanderthal and that he hasn't evolved past that so he wouldn't invent the wheel? I have no idea. I, I'm just trying to figure that line out. I'm not sure. I, I thought the best line of the film actually came from Catherine Harold as Monique, which was indicative of the overall writing in this film where yeah. um, where Robert Davy's character is giving her the gears because she's getting too close to Schwarzenegger and she says, you want the job done right, don't you? To which Robert Davy replies, well, what have you found out? And she says, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I have that one written down as well. I think uh, that doesn't sound like the job being done right at all. Yeah, no, I mean... The movie has all these lines like that. Like, here's the thing. This is an R-rated movie. It's pretty violent. Why are they not kind of playing up the kind of dialogue you can get away with in an R-rated movie where you've got, like, really sadistic gangsters? Yeah. Like, they sound cornball. I'm trying to think if there was a single swear in this movie. Like, was there a single F-bomb thrown around? There probably was. But they feel like the type of gangsters you would see in, like... (laughs) <laughs> like the, like a Disney ride or the Incredible Hulk TV show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, like, oh, we got some evil gangsters from Chicago. <laughs> Zoinks, he's going to get us. Yeah, they're the kind of gangsters you might see in Twins. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good call. That's a really good call. Although those ones seem more scary. <laughs> in some ways they do. They're bigger. Like, remember that hitman in, in Twins who would walk around and just shoot people down with a silencer? He was getting more done than these guys really were. Yeah, but these guys were better at the accounting side of things. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> they were very successful. Um, and it seemed like this gang, the, or the Patravita gang, is like on the run most of this movie. Like, they are being attacked by the Lemansky gang consistently. Like, Lemansky's really got his operations together where he's got like a bus full of like guys shooting out the windows, pulling up to, uh, to Patravita. Um, there's all these hit attempts. It seems like they're the more dangerous group. And again, I may not have totally caught that part of the movie. I, I, I did catch the bus part because sure. I could clearly see Patravita on screen getting shot at. Yeah. Um, a lot of the other attacks, I wasn't really clear on who was shooting at whom. Well, they don't do a very good job setting up whose goons are whose. <laughs> and, you know, you have scenes where, like, Schwarzenegger's in a mall... I guess, in like a, a department store. Well, in a shopping district. Yeah, yeah. Watching um, uh, Monique, uh, Catherine Harold's character, like put on dresses in a scene that has to be seen to be believed. But, you know, they are attacked by goons. The same three goons we puzzled out finally. Yeah, and uh, who were who those goons? Uh, I Again, I think <laughs> that they were somehow in the service of um, Max Keller, Robert Davi's character. Okay. But at this point, Schwarzenegger was working for Patravita, so I'm not exactly clear as to why these guys would have showed up again. Yeah. And there's a lot of that sort of thing in the movie where, again, it feels like the exposition's been cut out. (laughs) Yeah. And 
you know, one thing I will uh, I'll say, and I'll I'll, I'll confess, it, it comes from I, I read Roger Ebert's review of this movie uh, right. when it was released, and one of the things that he remarked on was Chicago seems to be a place where nobody notices anything. <laughs> There's um you know machine gun battles going on. The fight in the department store is an excellent example as Schwarzenegger throws someone through a plate glass window, and the people outside just. Seem to keep walking past, going about their business, sure. unconcerned, getting an Orange Julius or whatever. Right. And, um, you know, where are the cops and the concerned citizens Yes. in, in this film? I have no idea. Like, it, it seems like Schwarzenegger's allowed to get away with things that would draw a lot of attention. Like, there's a scene where they take down Lemansky, and it's just like... You know, it starts with a chase on the highway where they say they're going to run his car off the road and then they proceed to not do that. <laughs> and, like, the two cars are driving side by side, shooting at each other, going round buildings, around and around, shooting at each other over and over again. And I like that um, Lemansky's car has bullet-resistant glass. Yeah, the, the close-up of the bullet-resistant stencil on the glass was yeah. a nice touch. Yeah, but they show that multiple times. But, like, you never have cop cars showing up. They're driving all around, like, w- waterfront district... And then, like, Lemansky goes up in, like, a puff of, like, flame. And, again, it's just like they just drive away. No one cares. No one seemed to notice that there was a mob war going on on the highway. That ran into a conveniently placed fuel truck. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. No, I, I totally agree with Ebert's point. Like, um, it's something that I think a lot of 80s movies do. But I think this one, it bothers you more. Because the world of the movie doesn't feel nailed down. It's supposed to be, I feel like this movie's supposed to be a little gritty and realistic uh, for an Arnold movie, but it's also really absurd and weird. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I totally agree with that. I have a question for you. I, I'm just having a moment here where I'm remembering the scene where Schwarzenegger kills himself, you know, to go undercover. Yeah. So he drives to the Irvin, like, fuel plant or whatever, named after the director, John Irvin, I have to assume, and um, he... Pulls over his car, drives away, and then sets off an explosion that blows up the entire plant. (laughs) And you see, like, a lot of barrels exploding. It's pretty great. (laughs) But he drives away, and the idea is they're going to think he's dead. Because he sent a radio in saying, hey, I'm at the fuel plant. And so, okay, let's assume they think Schwarzenegger's dead, despite the fact there's no, you know, corpse or anything like that. But whatever. I'm willing to go with it. Maybe the maybe the explosion was so big. Sure, sure. But Schwarzenegger has just set up that he's dead. How is he going to come back and join the FBI? Well, I think the same way he would come back and be with his wife, which is he would establish, I wasn't dead after all. I was busy infiltrating the mob. And he's not at all responsible for blowing up a fuel plant? You can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, Cameron. Like... Don't you feel like that would come up after the fact when he's like, actually, I'm alive? Well, you realize you blew up millions of dollars yeah. worth of equipment. You realize you were a small-town sheriff, uh, and this <laughs> town seems to have two industries, one of which is a uh, naphthalene plant that you blew up, and the other one is a log sort that you had a car chase through in the first <laughs> five minutes of the film. Well, at least he didn't blow up the log collection. I'm sure if there had been a naphthalene tank around, he would have. Yeah, okay. Did this bother you? I found it humorous. I was at, at that point in the movie, I was still willing to suspend disbelief. I actually thought the opening in the movie was really 
great. It came on with like a, uh, and we'll talk about it a little bit later, kind yeah. of a, like the Miami Vice style synth oh, track. Oh, it's total Miami Vice. Yeah, yeah. And and then you know, in the fir- before the credits even roll, we see you know a helicopter, a boat, yeah. a train, and a car to establish that you know all kinds of things are going to be crashing into each other in this movie. Uh, and then we go to the kind of the weird country chase but you know it's through cornfields and a log sort and yeah very dukes of hazard yeah and it was kind of a fun chase in a you know where he's in a jeep chasing a motorcycle and i thought you know what this movie is not going to be realistic but that's not what i'm I'm not here for a documentary yeah uh so at that point i was willing to um actually sit back and enjoy the fact that he could blow up the naphtha factory right okay i mean i don't know that i can let it go but I can move on. <laughs> or I should say refinery, because I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, yeah. you know, naphtha miners out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, what did you think of Schwarzenegger's cover act? Did you think he did a good job? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like me to say more? Well, I think it was a questionable choice to tell the, um, you know, gambling addict who's investigating him secretly about his wife. Yeah, that was probably a poor choice. Yeah. Um, I, I did think, <laughs> on the subject of the cover and the uh, and the gambling addict that he's may he may or may not be sleeping with, depending on whether you talk to Cameron or I. Um, I did think it was interesting that you know when she thought he was passed out, um, she took his passport. Yeah. Um, to me, uh, if I were trying to figure out if someone were an undercover cop or not. And they were just carrying around their passport everywhere they went. I mean, right. That's kind of a dead giveaway. <laughs> like, a passport is something you usually travel with when you go tra- traveling. Sure. <laughs> it's not something that you travel with when you're just walking around your home country. No, that made no sense. Yeah. So, all in all, I mean, yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think using a flimsy doctored passport and then, you know, telling someone who's closely connected to the mob some personal details about yourself yeah. is really the best way to go about being undercover. He just seemed to me way too flashy and too obviously putting on an act to really work as this gangster that he wants to be seen as. All these guys, they don't look like Schwarzenegger. They look weathered <laughs> and just kind of beaten down. Whereas like Schwarzenegger does not look that way. No, but he does dye his hair. That's true. He did dye his so, hair? So he gets points for that. Or at least slicked it back. Slicked it back, I think, is more yeah, what he did. Okay, fair enough. What did you think of this whole subplot that is actually plays a very important role in the movie? Are you just going to keep asking me <laughs> yes. questions about the plot that I can't I answer? Am. Well, no, no. Like, I'm just curious. What did you think of the subplot involving Joe Rigobuto's character, Marvin Baxter, who was a prosecutor that ruined Schwarzenegger's career in the Bureau? Yeah, which we'll add. It's also, uh, you know, uh, Emmy Award winning uh, Joe Regalbuto. <laughs> From Murphy Brown fame. That's he, right. He played Frank. But uh, there was two Murphy Brown actors on here. <laughs> <laughs> the Murphy Brown connection is strong. I think uh, we established that in Eraser. That's true. Um, the six degrees of Murphy Brown is only one degree deep with Schwarzenegger. <laughs> but we find out that Schwarzenegger had a case against, you know, like a psychopath who had molested, murdered, and mutilated a woman. Uh, and hearing Schwarzenegger say those words is the greatest gift this movie gives. It brought us back to Hercules in New York, because uh, they should never have asked 
<laughs> Schwarzenegger to say those lines. Yeah. It's like giving him a tongue twister. It's like asking him, you know, how many pecks of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked. <laughs> That's pretty good. Thanks. Um, but did you think it was too much to add on this subplot where the guy who ruined Schwarzenegger's career also just happens to be involved with this Chicago mob deal? Again, I think in a different movie, I would have yeah. forgiven that because, um, you know, this is typical of, I think, a Dino De Laurentiis type film and um, similar actually to, to Red Heat as well, the Walter Hale style, where um, there's, you know, an overarching theme that the law is weak and uh, you, what true justice is, is far beyond the scope of what the law is willing to impose on a criminal. Right. So, you know, I would have I would have been willing to to forgive it because yeah, they established that he's ultimately the guy that made Schwarzenegger resign for uh, police brutality. You know, and so he's got kind of a, a I guess a tertiary antagonist relationship with Schwarzenegger in some way. So if they want to establish that he's actually crooked mm-hmm. and, and not as uh, holier than thou as uh, as he maybe makes himself out to be i'm fine with it yeah okay i mean i just thought it was more could have been done there like he just seems like kind of a nothing character yeah i don't know if it's more could have been done with him or less could have been done with everyone else that's true my favorite moment with him is actually when he's on tv and there's a he has his nameplate in front of his desk and it says marvin baxter <laughs> and Schwarzenegger watches it for like five seconds, and then he's like, "That's Baxter." <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure Schwarzenegger would know, or Schwarzenegger's character would know uh, who the guy is who uh, ruined, ruined your his career. Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Much less stared at the nameplate for about five seconds before noticing the name. Well, given how he pronounced "molested," "murdered," and "mutilated," maybe <laughs> maybe his character can't read. Right. <laughs> so, before we get to the big action set piece, i got to comment on one thing. You know, we talked about exposition, and I want to talk about the big shootout in the gravel pit, because I think that's the showcase moment of the movie. Um, but how we get there. Darren McGavin is hanging out at the cemetery, visiting his son's grave. <laughs> Robert Davy stages kind of a hit on this guy. Why? I don't know. Do you have any like? There is no relationship whatsoever, really, between Max Keller and Harry Shannon. Right. So it's it's just a test of Schwarzenegger, I think. Right. So it's not at all clear to me. Like at that point, I think Schwarzenegger's cover had been blown or partially blown. Yeah. But they hadn't established at all that it traced back to the Harry Shannon character. I'd have to go back and rewatch it again <laughs> to nail that down. You don't think so? I don't think so. I mean, again, I mean, and this goes just goes to what we've already been talking about is if they really want to kill uh, Harry Shannon, they're the mob. They should just go ahead and do it. Sure, but and, and if Schwarzenegger's cover has been blown, um, why are they taking him on these hits and giving him a right. gun? Yeah, no kidding. Because what ultimately happens is. They shoot Harry Shannon, and then Schwarzenegger shoots the rest of them. Yeah. And it's like, okay, they all got killed. Although, what I will say about that scene is it is kind of the turning point where the movie went from uh, totally baffling procedural drama almost. Yeah. And into what we really want to see in a Schwarzenegger film. Right. And that's, yeah. So, Schwarzenegger goes to Harry, and he's like, 
Harry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And he's like, it's all right. <laughs> and then we cut to what may be the most insane scene in the movie, which is Schwarzenegger in his hotel room with his shirt off, toweling himself as a voiceover from Harry plays going, stay away from the gravel pit. We don't know what goes on down there. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very strange given that, um, you know, it was almost like a flashback. Except it wasn't a flashback. It was just an expository voiceover from this guy who was in a scene like 10 seconds ago. Why not just have him tell Schwarzenegger right then? Yeah. No, instead it's this weird voiceover over a very <laughs> wonderfully lit shot of Schwarzenegger just covered in baby oil, toweling himself. Very strange. But then we get the moment that I think this movie is really built around, which is Schwarzenegger just taking an ungodly amount of weaponry to the gravel pit, putting on the Rolling Stones, no satisfaction, and just driving around and shooting people. Yeah, I mean, the gun porn in this sequence is is high yeah. right a lot of classic schwarzenegger uh you know close-ups of bandoliers being strapped on and knives yeah. being thrown into actually i don't think there was a knife but you know shotguns being loaded close up and that kind of thing right and then throwing them all in the back of this convertible um and i guess the idea is um and i think a better movie would have done this was that he was just so angry that right. they had shot his friend that he considered it to be, I guess, a raw deal. <laughs> and now he was going to get his revenge. I don't know what other raw deals there were in this movie. That's the closest I can figure out. Well, he didn't get a raw deal in all this. No one did. He would have gotten a raw deal if Harry Shannon had been killed. Because he was the only one that knew about Schwarzenegger being in the mob. Then he would have a raw deal. Correct. Because he's screwed. But that's not the case. No, so they should have just called this movie Deal. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> but ultimately, Schwarzenegger's driving around shooting these people down. And I mean, like, I don't think that John Irvin is a very good director. I think this movie's pretty clunky for the most part. I actually think this shootout is fairly well done, though. So do I. I mean, it's it's definitely entertaining. It's uh, It's hard to argue with Schwarzenegger ripping around a gravel pit which i had never really considered before yeah uh this movie what a great place for a vehicular shootout totally it's great like and you have the scenes where the construction vehicles are attacking him and stuff and it's a blast like i loved it when that guy fell down the rock crusher that was the greatest <laughs> thing i could ever have hoped you, you for. sadist oh i love moments like that they're amazing <laughs> And I mean, uh, John Irvin directed Hamburger Hill, the Vietnam movie, yeah. which isn't very good. But the uh, combat stuff is well done. And mm -hmm. so I think he kind of brought some of that to this. Like, he can't do the drama <laughs> so much. Or the humor. Well, Hamburger Hill, that was the one where they're throwing cakes at each other in Vietnam, right? <laughs> Correct. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, like, the this scene, I think, works. Like, I think it's actually kind of unfairly ignored within the canon of schwarzenegger action scenes like it's an it's an awesome scene and it's different than a lot of his other action moments yeah it's got some great uh he's almost terminator like at this point we, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, very unemotional just fueled by rage well this is uh, just two years removed from terminator so like playing on that iconography makes a lot of sense 
Yeah, and it's got a lot of great uh, camera shots and you know close close shots and wide angles that work really well in the context of the scene. Yeah, uh, with him, uh, you know, classic Arnold, just one arming assault rifles. Uh, <laughs> 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 I don't know what someone's aim is like when they're, yeah. uh, you know, fishtailing a Cadillac around uh, <laughs> with an assault rifle in their hand, but it's pretty good for Schwarzenegger. I have a question for you, though. <laughs> you have a lot of. Questions I have many for, questions, for but I mean, this episode, this sequence is like pretty effective. Like it's, I'm not going to say it's James Cameron level direction, but it's effective. Why then do the like all the fist fights and everything seem so clunky? I know what you mean. The the fist fights in this film they almost seem they're right on the edge of almost being comedic. They're like lethargic in terms of their tension and pace. Yeah, I I wasn't as offended by them as maybe as maybe you were. I don't think I was offended. It's just that they were very flat. They were a little flat. I was actually thinking again. Um, I mean, it's a we're obviously drawing a lot of parallels between it. Uh, I was thinking of red heat where the action in red heat was very hard hitting yeah uh and this movie i think could have done with a little bit more of that because the the fist fights were actually fairly violent like there were a lot of knees to the face and like slamming people's yeah. heads into brick walls and that kind of thing but people getting hit with flower pots yeah that one not as much <laughs> But yeah, there wasn't really the sense of impact or damage that uh, you kind of would hope for. Yeah, it's just, I think of that moment early, early in the movie where he takes out the whole gambling hall and there's like the guy he like hangs up over the ventilation, whatever it is, Yeah. section and the guy's just hanging there and then falls down, but it has like no impact. It just feels like kind of a, a stuntman phoning it in for that day. <laughs> Although I did appreciate showing schwarzenegger throw a guy over a ceiling beam basically i mean that's always yeah, impressive that's true i wish it had been shot a little better though i just think it could have been cooler yeah what i will say about that fight scene too is uh, whoever it is who perforates wooden tables down the middle for <laughs> for fight scenes and movies yeah. was busy that day yeah no kidding <laughs> now we have the big you know gravel pit shootout do you think it was a mistake to not have that be the end of the movie? Because we then have this whole shootout in the main mobster's office slash, you know, building. Did that feel like a bit of a letdown coming off of the gravel pit sequence? Not at all. I don't think no? so. I think the, the gunfight in the, the nightclub slash mob base, it's not really clear again what exactly this place yeah. is. Uh, I thought that was a great scene as well, an awesome shootout. The old elevator trick, where you send the elevator up, and the doors open, and they all unload on the elevator. Yeah, i never seen that one before. Nope. It actually reminded me a lot of, say, the bar fight in Desperado or something sure. like that. Yeah. I mean, a bit of a stretch, but the uh, the lobby scene or the in The Matrix or something like that, where there's a lot of going behind pillars, coming out one side or the other. It's very John Woo-like. Right, without. Yeah. I won't, I won't say that uh, Irvin is a woo when it comes to action, but I, I appreciate it. I thought that the gunfight in the nightclub, if there had been a little bit more of that in the movie, it would have been a better movie. I agree. Like I thought that sequence was fun. I think the gravel pits look much better, but I thought the, the shootout in the tower was, was pretty good. Um, I did enjoy, though, like the weird, weird moment where he kills Patrovita with a shotgun and then goes over and pours like candy over top of him. What a weird moment. It, it was weird. 
It was those gross uh, licorice candies. Yeah. That no one likes. <laughs> no one likes those at all. In a, in a better movie, that would have been a great scene. <laughs> uh, we would be remiss talking about this uh, nightclub gunfight to not uh, segue into uh, our Spot Sven segment that we do in each right. episode. Where uh, Sven Ole Thorsen, one of Schwarzenegger's longtime collaborators, he's been in more Schwarzenegger movies than anyone except Schwarzenegger. Uh, he was one of the uh, the bad guys in this uh, fight scene before getting mercilessly shot down after his gun jammed or ran out of bullets. He was so, very prominent too in this scene. Yeah, yeah, you, you can't miss him in this one. There's there's yeah. other movies we've watched where we've had to kind of pause it and be like, maybe he was the stunt man yeah, underneath yeah. the pile of blankets or something like that. Or like, which of the Santas was he in Jingle All the Way? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No, this one's really obvious, and it's it's a fun one, and so, he definitely gets killed real good. Yeah, so if you haven't if you haven't watched the movie yet, uh, you know, keep an eye out for him when you do. For sure. Now we get a little bit of an epilogue here. We get two epilogues, it's actually. A, it's certainly a log. <laughs> <laughs> Where first he goes to the airport and sees off <laughs> Catherine Harold's character. He gives her $250,000. Which I guess he's stolen? I guess so. Good way to start off your new career in the FBI. Yeah. Is that from the $150 million? <laughs> Yeah. And then sees her off. She tearfully, you know, flies off into the sunset to start a new life. Which I'll just add, uh, you know, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but I think sending off someone who, you know, a woman who's been closely tied to the mob and who has an established gambling addiction, just putting her on a plane to wherever with $250,000 to some place where she doesn't know anyone, I'm assuming... Right. is probably not the best way to have her life turn out okay. It's kind of the fairy tale ending though of like everything's going to be okay for her now. I guess so. After a lifetime of terrible decisions, she's going to turn it around now. Yeah, this quarter million's really going to make her wake up and get on the straight and narrow. That's right. Pour a cup of Earl Grey tea and <laughs> uh, start going to church. <laughs> yeah, and she anyway, she flies away and then um they do establish that you know, the FBI is welcoming him back. Uh, the FBI agent Baker, played by uh, always recognizable Ed Lauder, a uh, character actor who's been in literally hundreds and hundreds of things. I just saw him in Guns of the Magnificent Seven the other day. Yeah, he's been in everything. Um, he recently died, I think, within right. the last few years. Uh, he comes and he says, I should have known a cop was behind all this. Uh, right. You know, we're going to look forward to working together or something like that. Yeah, and he's been kind of popping up throughout the movie, infiltrating the mob stuff, taking down drug lords. Involving, like, there's a really weird uh, takedown of a, of a mob safe hold where they have, like, a woman jogging down the street. Yeah, I, I, I guess she's the distraction. I guess so. Hey, it worked. It worked. So Good on them. But then we get to the final epilogue, which is flat-out bizarre, which is Darren McGavin's character... Like, jarringly bizarre. ...having to learn to walk again. <laughs> and we have Schwarzenegger on one side of the you know therapy bars being like, you're going to be a godfather. you got to do this. And Darren McGavin <laughs> struggling with all of his might... To just make it halfway to meet Schwarzenegger. And as he does it, we cut to a nurse crying in joy. 
And then we cut to him and Schwarzenegger embracing, embracing, crying with joy, hugging each other. Roll credits. I think they did a very poor job in this movie of setting up the relationship. <laughs> I thought you were going to end the sentence there. <laughs> between Harry Shannon and Schwarzenegger. Like what they really mean to each other. Well, I think that this scene, I think they probably wanted to end the scene or end the movie in the airport. Uh, Monique has flown off. Yeah. Schwarzenegger's back in the FBI. Great. Credits. Work. Credits. And then they realized, well, we didn't really say whether Harry was, Shannon was dead or not. Yeah. And plus we never resolved what happened with Schwarzenegger's wife. Yeah. So they, they just kind of tacked this on as, as the last thing, but it's, it's painful to watch. It's like, I mean, everyone has seen this scene before in some sitcom or or Lifetime s- movie. Yeah, C-grade, um, straight-to-DVD special feature. Right. Um, fair. Just, you know, come on, you can do it. Walk to me. Yeah. yeah. I did love the cuts to the nurse who's crying, though. That just made it comic uh, gold. And uh, what I will say is it was a fitting end to this dog's breakfast of <laughs> mishmash scenes that we call raw deal okay <laughs> now before we uh wrap up raw deal what did you think of schwarzenegger in this movie this is one year removed he's gonna come back in 87 with both predator and running man and really just nail down the schwarzenegger persona we all know and love does he have it in raw deal it's one year earlier is it still a little bit of a work in progress or is he awesome in this movie? Of all the problems in this movie, Schwarzenegger is not one of them. Right. Certainly, the lines they give him and some of the scenes they have him act in leave a lot to be desired. But he is not the problem here. In fact, uh, most of the actors aren't really the problem. The problem is the movie. I, I don't know. What do you think? I think the problem is is that I think Arnold's great. Like Physically, he's awesome. He pulls off all the action stuff pretty well. Um, he is charismatic. But I think the problem is his character feels really passive a lot of the time. Like, he should be really active and outwitting these guys at every turn. Whereas it seems like he's just along for the ride too much of the time, which isn't that fun to watch. And so, like, it kind of drags down the Schwarzenegger persona, which you do not picture the Arnold of, like, Predator or, you know, Terminator 2 or whatever just kind of sitting there passively watching to see what happens. You know, he's the guy kind of steering the scenes. Yeah, it's an action movie. We want to see some action. That's right. He spends too much of this movie just kind of like, huh, what's going to happen now? And, you know, that just makes it a little less special, I think, as far as Schwarzenegger performances go. But he's fine. Like, I think at this point, he has the stuff. He just needs the screenplay to take him to the next level. And this wasn't quite it. No, this was not quite it. But overall, did you enjoy revisiting Radio? Of course. I, I, I always like revisiting a Schwarzenegger yeah. movie. I don't know, again, if this movie is one that I'm going to throw on again anytime soon. Uh, we may revisit it <laughs> at some point in the distant future when we run out of Schwarzenegger topics generally. But yeah. uh, I was happy to watch it. I, I enjoyed watching the movie for all that I have poo-pooed the plot and the confusing nature of it pretty hard not to (laughs) 
<laughs> I have a, how about you? I mean, what did, what did you think? I mean, we've we've ragged on this movie, right? We have sure. we have pulled this movie apart like it's uh, barbecue sauce soaked pork. <laughs> you know, this, as I said, like this movie is just it's pretty C maybe D plus grade kind of action fodder. It's really goofy. Um, and not in a way where I think it's in on the joke most of the time. It's gloriously 80s. You have scenes where, like, people are just dancing really weirdly in the backgrounds of, se- like, very yeah. serious scenes. It's so 80s, it's almost 70s. Yeah, like, there's so many club scenes in this alone that are, like, just genius to watch. And so, like, I totally enjoyed watching it. It's not the slog that I think, like, some of the other Arnold, maybe the later ones, like Collateral Damage or something like that, which we, we haven't done yet on the podcast. But, like, that movie isn't going to be fun to sit through in, in the way that this one is. You say that now. Yeah, I say that now. But you know what I mean? Like, it's not going to have that level of goofball weirdness to it that, like, you only get in the Age of Excess that was the 80s. Yeah, for sure. And so, like, yeah, I just think this one, you could have cut this thing down to, like, 90 minutes, make it, like, a really fast and lean action-filled 90 minutes and i think it would be better for it but i i found it pretty painless to sit through and it has some memorable stuff i'll agree with you a a little bit of scissors in the editing room would have gone a long way here okay so i think that wraps up raw deal so tony what's up next time i'm glad you asked cam next time we've got i think a really special event (laughs) uh it's been a long time since we've seen a schwarzenegger film uh in the theaters and we've never reviewed one i don't think on this podcast don't think so late last year we got in contact with the uh creators of uh, a movie called wonders of the sea 3d which is a film from jean-michel cousteau who i believe is jacques cousteau's son let's hope so Uh, yeah some some relation i think obviously but it's narrated by arnold schwarzenegger i'm not sure how prominently he's going to feature in this movie but we did confirm that under the sea (laughs) under the sea (laughs) i i I can only hope it's a little better than that um but we did confirm it is going to be released in uh february so in canada so those of you in the u.s had a one night only showing on january 17th hopefully you got out and saw it (laughs) but if not i think we're gonna make this one a little more uh, accessible to people that haven't seen the movie. I mean, you can't spoil <laughs> footage under the sea. Yeah, there is apparently magnificent biodiversity, so you can pretty much just give it a miss because that's going to be the general plot of the film. Right. I think we're going to tackle this one on a different angle than yeah. usual, and we're going to make it fun and kind of loose, and I think it'll be a good episode. Yeah, so hopefully we get tickets to the limited showing that they have here and uh, hopefully you'll join us next time for that okay so you can of course leave a review for this podcast if you enjoyed it at itunes or overcast or any of your podcast catching software we'd very much appreciate it it does wonders for our ranking and all that sort of stuff so that would be great uh you can of course reach us at arniegeddonpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at ArnieGeddonPod. You can find me at Cam V is in very confusing plot, Smith. Tony, where can they reach you? You can find me, Tony G, at ArnieGeddon.com. You can also visit our website, www.ArnieGeddon.com. Okay, we'll be back with Wonders of the Sea 3D. Oh, no!